What is up, ambitious listeners? Uh, I hope you like the intro. We're going to try to include that in every episode from here on out. Give this show a little distinct identity. But uh, So today's episode is the most scientific I have gotten on the show. Um, not really me, but renowned biomedical gerontologist Aubrey DeGray joins the show. He talks to me about his SENS Research Foundation, but even more importantly than that, which his findings in that are absolutely incredible. Please check it out. Please listen to everything he says because what he's doing is phenomenal. But more important than that, we're in the middle of a COVID-19 worldwide pandemic. He breaks down some of the safety measures, prevention measures, stuff that's good, stuff that's bad, what you could do to raise awareness, just generalized scientific aspect of the COVID-19 pandemic, which is kind of refreshing to hear because you're hearing so much of the uh, more of a healthcare worker perspective or political aspect. So here is hearing it from a scientist, somebody who's in the field and studies biology and studies the tracings and all the stuff that leads up to these vaccines. So an incredible conversation, or not vaccines, viruses. Incredible conversation. Also, another addition to Senior Spotlight, Drew Taylor, John V. Patel joined the show. Great episode, loaded episode. Please check out Sen's Research Foundation. Seriously, you know, they make some incredible contributions to society. And although I may not have been able to highlight exactly what he does the best in this episode, Aubrey is a phenomenal human and what he's doing is incredible. So first, Word from our sponsors, Anchor, then episode with Aubrey DeGray, and then Senior Spotlight with the girls. Hope you guys enjoy. What is up? Welcome to Ambitious. My name is Dylan Price. Have you ever wondered if there was a way to slow down aging? Well, Aubrey DeGray is dedicated to trying to find that fountain of youth. As a biomedical gerontologist, he is an expert in the fields of gerontology and trying to find a way to slow down aging. It is a unique problem, a very complex problem, and he's an expert in this field. And joining the show today is Aubrey DeGray. Aubrey, how's it going? And thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. So what, going right from the start, what inspired you to pursue gerontology and specifically the study of aging and how you can try to find a way to research and slow the aging process down? Really, what inspired me to get into this field was the discovery, uh, relatively late in life, in my late 20s, that uh, hardly anybody else was working on it. It had always been completely obvious to me that this was the number one problem facing humanity. And so I had always assumed that everyone else thought the same and that, therefore, uh, lots of biologists would be working hard on it and it would be unlikely that I would be, be able to make any contribution. Um, And then I found out that that was not true, that most biologists felt that aging was actually rather uninteresting and unimportant, and therefore that there was very little work going on. Um, And I was completely horrified by this, but after a little while of coming to terms with it, I decided, well, okay, I guess this means that I might be able to make a difference myself. So I switched fields from my previous field of artificial intelligence research, and since then I've been working on this. Now... How has the process kind of developed over the past, say, maybe even just 10 years span of significant developments in the field? And have there really been significant developments over the time you've contributed your time to working on this? Well, the answer to that question is very different point of view. So I, as a scientist in this field, have seen that there's been advances going on throughout the time I've been involved over the past 20, 25 years. Um, And of course, those advances, I I feel I've made a few contributions myself. 
our work at Sense Research Foundation has definitely been quite important. And of course, there's been masses of work elsewhere. But when I say that this is from a scientific perspective, that's because when you're at the coalface, things that are that to a non-specialist would look completely minor and insignificant are actually much more important because one can see how they constitute a stepping stone towards an eventual really um, dramatic goal. Um, from the point of view of the general public, I would say that things have really sped up in the past five or ten years. Uh, you know, there's more and more scientific reports coming out that are being presented to the general public with an explanation of why they are such important steps forward. And I think probably the most important change of all that's really happened only over the past five years is that people in the wider world have started to actually hear this message. And the biggest demonstration of that is the level of investment. And here I actually mean investment in the natural sense, um, you know, um, private sector investment in this field. Because, of course, people who want to make money don't invest money in things that are arbitrarily long term and arbitrarily speculative. Right. So um, basically, I think, yes, absolutely. Things have gone really well. Right now, there is an industry. There is, you know, there are well over 100 startup companies grinding away, doing really important work in this space that is within striking distance of leading to therapeutic interventions. Now, you mentioned briefly there your SENS Research Foundation work, and you're also the VP of New Technology and Discovery at Ajax Therapeutics. What kind of roles do you play in the development of this? Are you really, you know, leading the charge and trying to find the research, or are you more kind of um, administering how everybody goes about things, or what really generally is your role in the research of trying to solve aging? Yeah, I, I don't do any bench work myself. I don't actually, you know, run gels and work for pets and so on. Um, so my role in both in both um, of those jobs that you just described is really, you know, offering ideas and evaluating other people's ideas with regard to ways forward. So that includes evaluating new scientific data, results that are coming out of experiments. It includes coming up with new experiments to do. It includes looking at um, results that have been published elsewhere and trying to put two and two together and identify a new way forward that might be possible as a result of some progress that somebody else made, that kind of thing. Now, I guess maybe in the most simplistic sense possible, just a general question based on, you know, what you just told me to this point and, you know, the general feel you've got from researching this for the bulk of your career, do you think that you can truly, maybe even in just your lifetime or beyond it, do you think aging could be slowed down from a general consensus and that in 30 years, the, I guess, general outlook of aging will be entirely different? So let me separate that question into two parts. Number one being the extent to which we can intervene medically in aging in the future. And number two being the time frame within which we have a respectable chance of actually achieving that. So with regard to what we can achieve in the end, the answer is we will undoubtedly achieve absolute control over aging. In other words, we will be able not simply to slow it down, but actually to rejuvenate people, to take people who are already biologically old 
um, and turn them into people who are biologically young. In other words, people who are both mentally and physically as functional as typical young adults. That is absolutely certain to be achieved in the end. The question, therefore, is how soon? How close are we? How rapidly are we approaching that goal? And of course, as with any, any pioneering technology, the answer has to be extremely speculative because we have no idea what unforeseen obstacles we're going to encounter as we move forward. However, I believe that certainly in, in relation to this particular medical goal, which is, of course, of such importance to the world, it, I have a duty as an expert in this area to give some kind of prediction, or otherwise you're just going to make up your own prediction and it's going to be never, or it's going to be you know, very far in the future. And that's bad because it means that you won't be interested in um, you know, helping to make it happen faster because you'll think, well, it's basically not going to matter to you. So my prediction is at the moment that we have a 50-50 chance of reaching what I'm going to call a decisive level of control over aging within the next 17 years from now. So in other words, um, I don't know how long it's going to be, but I think that's a 50% chance. I think there's at least a 10% chance that we won't get to that point for 100 years, but that doesn't matter. What matters is we've got a good chance of getting there fairly soon. Now, what do I mean by a decisive level of um, impact? What I actually mean is enough progress that we are basically staying one step ahead of the problem. Since I'm talking about rejuvenation here, about actually restoring people to a younger biological age, that means we effectively are buying time until they get back to the biological age that they were before we treated them. And during that time, of course, researchers can further improve the therapies so that the people can be re-rejuvenated and brought back to a biologically younger age again. And the idea is to carry on doing that. So that's a point which I've called um, longevity escape velocity. And that's where I think we have a good chance of being within the next 15, 20 years. That's very cool and very encouraging, you know, from a general standpoint of there really being a positive outlook in the situation. Now, do you feel that, you know, you've done a lot of public appearances, you were on CBS 60 Minutes, you were on the Joe Rogan podcast, you've been very out there with expressing your research and trying to show the general public that there really is hope in changing the outlook of aging to the world in the general sense. Do you feel that those appearances and all your public um, appearances as a whole have gained notoriety for the subject and overall gained more funding for the SEND Research Foundation? I believe so. I think, I mean, I do actually spend probably more of my time. And in fact, for the past 10 or 15 years, I have actually spent more of my time doing that kind of stuff, doing the outreach and advocacy and so on. Um, than, I, than what I do on the science, which is kind of how you would expect it to be, actually, because on the scientific side, as the foundation has become more established and the field has become bigger, so, um, you know, I've been able to hire people and delegate the scientific work in large part to very strong, very good scientists um, uh, who work within the organization. Whereas when it comes to doing interviews or giving talks at conferences and so on, um, you know, basically everyone wants the front man. So it's much harder to delegate that. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't have a problem with that. But in terms of the impact that I've made, yeah, well, I mean, of course, it's impossible to really quantify how much impact one person makes rather than another. Uh, but yeah, I believe I've made a fair contribution. 
uh, and one of the biggest things to point out is that again over the past just the past few years no more than five i would say the number of people who are sharing that stage with me and doing their own interviews and talks and so on has grown a lot and i'm talking here of course about people who are propounding the right message who are actually knowledgeable enough about the science but also about the social context and everything around this area that they can actually give an articulate and powerful um, uh, expression of this message of course different people have different ways of saying things and, and the, the way they the way they say things resonates with different audiences so this diversity of messaging that has emerged over the past few years is an enormous um, step forward for the field so I guess shifting gears a little bit here, and I do want to touch back on all of this a little more towards the end of our conversation, but currently we are in the midst of a worldwide pandemic. I don't know how much you have uh, of a knowledge of the COVID-19 pandemic and the situation and the biologic or the biology side of it and, you know, the scientific side of it as a whole, but could you kind of give, I guess, maybe even if it's just a not entirely, you know, feeling the pulse of what it seems like but could you kind of give a outlook on how you feel about the situation and how you think, you know, the timetable is for getting out of this and getting out of lockdowns and that general consensus? Yeah. <clears throat> well, of course, the fact that the COVID pandemic is so disproportionately um, um, dangerous for the elderly means that it is very much a topic of conversation within the gerontology field right now. And... For sure, we are all doing our best to figure out ways to protect the elderly from this virus. But the main focus right now, and certainly the main focus going forward, is going to be both in the laboratory and in our conversations with decision makers and policy makers around the world to ensure that lessons are learned here. Essentially, we know, there is no dispute, that lives are being lost right now to this virus which would not be lost, which would be being lost, if we had been better prepared. And when I say prepared, I mean both medically and in terms of infrastructure. So in terms of infrastructure, of course, we can talk about things like, um, you know, having enough medical personnel, having enough, um, uh, you know, um, investment in equipment and, you know, uh, PPE, things like that. Um, which, of course, you know, didn't happen. And, of course, enough investment in the development of treatments. So, for example, streamlining of the development of neutralizing antibodies. Um, this is something that I certainly believe could, in principle, as of today, without any further research breakthroughs, could be much more streamlined and much more rapidly um, scaled up than is happening today. The other type of <clears throat> lesson that I'd like to see learned is um, with regard to the elderly specifically, that preventative medicine in general needs to be emphasized, even if the public do not really understand it and are not really on board with it. At the moment, the reason why the elderly are so disproportionately affected by this virus is simply because their immune systems are broken. And you know, people just think of that as inevitable and natural and so on. But the fact is, yes, it's part of aging. But the fact is, we have already made in the laboratories around the world, 
a lot of progress towards rejuvenating people's immune systems so that they are better able to fight off viruses and to stop those viruses from killing people. This is something which could be going a lot faster if it were properly its value were probably rec properly recognized um, and if it were better funded as a result. And certainly my hope and my indeed my expectation is that policymakers around the world will now start listening a lot more closely to people like myself who are providing this message and this information and will act accordingly in the aftermath of the pandemic. Now, looking at some of the preventative measures that have been put in place, I guess, on the United States level, and I guess, even on a worldwide level, social distancing has become a main proponent of the COVID pandemic. Do you feel social distancing is really helping, I guess, flatten the curve and buy more time to find a cure? Or do you feel like, you know, there's some methods and preventative measures aside from social distancing even that have been misinterpreted and aren't being properly used in some nations. I think think I think people are getting it broadly right. Of course, there's a range of policies being adopted across the world. And in many cases, that, that um, variation in policy depends a lot on circumstance, whether it's wealth, whether it's, you know, the ability of the economy to withstand um, being uh, being in lockdown and so on. But by and large, if we try and elide all of those differences, I think we can totally say that social distancing has had value and we're continuing to have value. <clears throat> the, um, you know, the, 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 the more work we get, the more progress we make in developing tests and vaccines and so on against this virus, um, the more we will be able to relax this social distancing. But what everybody's saying is absolutely correct, that we need to be extremely cautious in the manner in which we relax social distancing so as to ensure that we don't get a second wave of this and a lot more lives being lost than, um, than necessary. It's, it's a very tough balance because, of course, the... Um, lockdown is causing a lot of things not to work well, including in the rest of the healthcare system. And so lives are going to be lost indirectly as a result of excessive lockdown, so to speak, or they could, there's, there's that danger. So it's a very tricky balancing act that policymakers around the world are performing right now. And by and large, I think people are getting it right. Now, looking at, you just mentioned a second wave. Do you feel that, and I know it's a kind of hard thing to project because of how unknown really this virus is, but looking at, you know, trends of like the Spanish flu from 1918, do you feel that a second wave and even maybe a third wave is inevitable? Or do you feel like if the right preventative measures are put in place that this could be prevented? And even if there's not even a vaccine by then or by the fall when they're talking about a second wave hitting, do you feel that there's going to be a way to prevent this or do you feel it's just going to happen and we have to be well prepared versus how we were the first? Time? Well, um, I really, I think we, <clears throat> really the only way to um, give a concrete answer to that question is to move away from the concept of a wave. In other words, to recognize that what's going to happen in the future will be isolated peaks, um, you know, individual countries, individual cities even, having an outbreak and having therefore a, 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 an increase in death rate in the very short term, but 
with that outbreak being contained so that it doesn't spread too far across the country or across the world. So it's all about the extent to which the measures we're putting in place now can improve the quality of that containment. The presence of extensive testing is going to be absolutely vital. It's going to be, um, you know, getting more and more intensive all the time. People not, not just being tested, but being tested regularly. And the other thing that, of course, is absolutely vital here is contact tracing the identification of people who have been in contact with someone who is known to have contracted the virus recently, you know, because those people, of course, are the ones that are most likely to have it themselves before having had any symptoms. All of these things are going to make the biggest difference. And the extent to which they are put in place and the, you know, the, the rapidity with which an outbreak anywhere is detected and responded to will be the ultimate determinant of the extent to which we can safely relax social distancing and other aspects of the lockdown. Now, I guess one of my last questions in regards to social distancing, the preventative measures being put in place internationally, is is this really going to be the new normal until there is an answer? And I know that's kind of simplistic question, but is this going to be the way life is, especially if there's another outbreak in the next 10, 15, 20 years? Or is this going to be something that, like you said, people generally learn from and try to formulate better measures and better policies to prevent this in the future? And I guess my question really for you is, do you think this is going to really have an impact on the world for the future or do you think this is just going to be something that is disregarded over time and becomes something that is just a faint memory um well i don't really think it's an either or i think that there are ways in which it's going to be the new normal and become you know it's it going to change things and there are ways in which we are going to be able to revert to more or less the status quo ante so for example i certainly think that there is going to be a permanent change in how people recognize the importance of health um, and of health prevention, of, of, of disease prevention. Um, for example, it's going to become completely acceptable to be regularly tested for virus. It's going to become completely acceptable and normal um, to engage in um, contact tracing uh, and such like. These, the things I mentioned in, in my previous answer are going to be, I think, absolutely permanent changes. And the reason I feel confident in saying this is because it has a very close parallel with what happened 20 years ago after 9-11. You know, there was a lot of chaos and panic and general, um, you know, uh, uh, hit to um, the, way the, the way the world works at that time. And we've basically recovered from that. But the way in which we have recovered has incorporated a lot more acceptance of a lot more um, uh, profiling of people so as to minimize the risk of further terrorist attacks, things like that. I think there's a strong parallel there. Um, the, the, the better we do that, and of course we're going to get better over time as we develop more sophisticated methods and more sophisticated tools, the better we do that, the um, more we can let other aspects of society revert to normal. So I guess I have two more questions for you about the pandemic and then we'll get back to aging. So 
two more general questions, I guess, is do you think that, I mean, one thing that's been common here in the United States is it seems like it's been politicized a lot more than it's been, you know, good news given out to the general public. Do you feel like there is a light at the end of the tunnel coming soon for the general public, at least in America and even nation or internationally? Or do you feel as though, you know, we're not there yet, but, you know, keep on keeping on would be your general message to the public and the demographic listening to this right now? Well, a bit of both. I mean, um, you know, you're always going to get uh, games being played by politicians in situations like this, whether domestically or internationally. And, um, you know, I'm pretty much ignoring that because at the end of the day, um, you know, the public everywhere wants to see this virus minimised in its impact as quickly as possible. And of course, different societies have different norms with regard to what trade-off is acceptable there, and that's kind of okay. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't really feel there's, there's anything, you know, there's any one-size-fits-all answer to that question. Now, my final question for you regarding the COVID pandemic is, do you feel there's a lot of controversy about the general start of the virus how do you feel it started do you feel it was manufactured or do you feel this was just something that was naturally occurring and was bound to strike internationally so of course i don't have any information that i don't have any any i'm not privy to any information that isn't available to everybody else and therefore i'm certainly of the view as of now um that the, the consensus view among scientists which is that the virus arose naturally in another species viruses like this certainly do jump from one species to another occasionally and exactly how and why that and when that jump happens is very very hard to determine but honestly you know it's it's normal now looking back at aging a little more and your efforts in it what kind of impact do you feel that you would feel satisfied with you know hanging your hat on obviously there's, you said maybe like a 17 year prediction for having a real um, impact on changing the outlook on it and changing the way it's perceived. But what would be, you know, a satisfying impact for you to hang your hat on for your efforts? Well, my in efforts in relation to the pandemic? Oh, no. Huh. Well, so. there's no such thing as satisfactory. As far as I'm concerned, every life matters, right? So, I, I, I view my own work as contributing to hastening the achievement of longevity escape velocity. And of course, not just the development of the um, medical interventions, but the hastening, uh, but, the, but the dissemination of those medical interventions to everybody who is old enough to need them. This is something that, um, you know, I do every day. It's what gets me out of bed in the morning. And, you know, I, of course, I look back and ask myself, you know, have I actually um, made mistakes? Could I have done things better? Thankfully, by and large, the answer is no. I feel that I have actually not made many mistakes. I've, I've um, you know, uh, judged things pretty well in terms of how I can make the most difference. But of course, the point is not the past, but the future. I've got to find ways to carry on doing that. Now, you know, the SEND Research Foundation, how much money in terms of donations do you guys feel you need to really accomplish 
more productive research or do you feel you guys are at a point now where you guys are bringing in enough money to continue um productive research methods or do you guys need more donations yeah so 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 the answer to that question has very much divided into two parts over the past few years because of the emergence of the private sector that i mentioned earlier the, the emergence of uh, seed investors, angel investors who are sufficiently persuaded of the um, progress that's been made that they're willing to actually, uh, you know, put money into a startup company. This, the fact is, there's a lot of people out there who are wealthy and reasonably visionary and who are, you know, supportive of this field, but who really don't like giving money away. And people like that generally are quite comfortable with writing a very big check to a company, even a very early stage company where the technology has a lot, to, a long way to go, um, who would not be happy writing even a tenth of that size of a check to a charity. So what we're, the situation we're in now is that some of the technologies which are required in order to bring aging under under complete medical control and achieve longevity escape velocity, have reached that point of sufficient proof of concept that we've been able to get investors interested and spin them out into startup companies. And those companies, those, those projects, basically are no longer limited by the availability of funding. They have enough funding that the rate limiter is simply the difficulty of the science. But there are other equally vital components of that panel of medical research, which have not yet reached the point of sufficient proof of concept to be investable in the eyes of these people I'm talking about. And those projects are still having to be pursued in a nonprofit capacity with Incense Research Foundation and other nonprofits. And um, as I say, those, be, those projects are by no means adequately funded. We are still working with a total budget per year of only four, between four and $5 million, um, which is basically flatlined for the past decade. And, um, you know, that's really not working out for us. You know, we, if we could probably go twice as fast if we had another digit on top of that. Now, if there was ever a way, maybe this is an ignorant idea, but if there was never a way to drum up some more money, would it be, you know, maybe shaving your beard, shaving your hair and turning yourself into a James Bond type character by 2028 and, you know, playing a role in a movie and gaining some more notoriety and saying, well, look at me, look how fit I am at 60 something or eight years from now and trying to, you know, drum up support for it that way? Or is that just a ignorant out of the Well, of idea? course, image does matter. You know, I'm a public <laughs> figure in this field and therefore people are going to form impressions on the basis of things other than what I say, <laughs> you know, things other than the actual science. Um, but my sense is that actually I'm probably judging that about right. I have to, on the one hand, um, you know, be a good um, role model for the field. And certainly I am biologically a lot younger than my chronological age. Um, but also I have to, um, you know, I have to take a few other boxes. For example, it's actually extremely important that I look, you know, unmaterialistic, you know, that I don't wear a suit and tie and look like I'm in this for personal financial gain. 
because if I did look like that, then I would not be so trusted as I and you know trust in the uh, in the fact that what I say is based only on the science and not on personal vested interests is um, you know an absolutely essential component of getting my message across. Things like that. Now, Aubrey, what inspired you to pursue biology and gerontology from, I guess, even a younger age? What inspires you to go into this field and what inspired you as a whole to pursue everything you do in your efforts to help people through science and be the visionary? So with regard to the biology of aging, I think I already answered that early on in the interview saying how like I discovered in my late 20s that hardly anybody else was working on this. But more generally, um, I was working before that in artificial intelligence research for essentially the same reason, namely humanitarian reasons. I felt that, you know, it would be, it would improve the quality of life of humanity if we had more automation, because people would not then have to spend so much of their time doing stuff that they wouldn't do unless they were being paid for it. Um, and uh, so, so, you know, ever since I was a young kid, I have definitely felt that my goal in life is to work on the biggest problems, to have the biggest impact I can on, 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 the, on the human condition. That's very cool. Now, looking at outside of your research, outside of your scientific endeavors, are there other things you pursue in terms of like hobbies or fun, you know, activities you do, like side projects that are not involved in, you know, the scientific research capacity or the public relations for the foundation? Uh, well, I don't really, you know, I, I, I do maths for a hobby. Um, you know, I'm interested in a bunch of other things. I pay attention to all the other areas of, you know, big problems for humanity, um, you know, whether it's climate change or world peace or whatever. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I pay attention to these things, but for sure I'm going to carry on um, focusing on on the biology of aging as my main area until until I don't need to. Very cool, Aubrey. It's been an honor to talk with you. My final question for you is a sort of broad one and a bigger question, I guess, especially with all the things you're tapped into and your scientific endeavors. When it's all said and done, your life as a whole, we talked a little bit about satisfaction and you know not maybe needing that for your projects, but is there a legacy that you would be happy leaving on from your life? And that <laughs> I don't think about legacy for two reasons. Number one, I'm not intending to die, um, you know, which is a bit of a prerequisite. And number two, you know, I'm definitely not in this for recognition. I'm in this, you know, I get my, my, my reward is the, um, you know, the observation that my work is making a difference. And, you know, I, I mean, I get, I get, I get quite enough, adulation as it is and in fact the people i look up to the most are the people in this field who are the foot soldiers and who nobody knows but they work just as hard as me they're just as committed you know and they don't get people coming up in the, to them in the street out of the blue saying uh, how, how awesome they are um so you know I, I have it easy i don't think about legacy at all now i just to add on to that i guess before we close out here you mentioned you know not planning on dying I guess a question I kind of forgot to ask you here, but with your research into aging, what would you say that an ideal development in terms of extending the average lifespan of a human would be in terms of year length and life? There's length? no such thing. There's no such thing. The point about um, ageism is that it's not one is that people's 
you know, entitlement to quality of life and, uh, you know, in general happiness is not, a, is not dependent on how long ago they were born, right? So, in other words, people who were born a long time ago have just as much entitlement to good health as anybody else. And the only reason we have a um, bias right now in the extent to which we allocate resources to health based on age is because of the effectiveness of that allocation. In other words, the fact that right now, most of the things that young people get sick from, we can treat with medicines that already exist. Whereas most of the people that the elderly get sick from, we can't. We can only have very minimal, if any, impact on them. Once that has changed as a result of the work that I and other people are doing, we will be in a situation where it really won't matter how long ago you were born, and we will be able to keep people equally healthy, irrespective of their chronological age, you know, uh, uh, and, and it won't get any harder to do so. We will carry on being able to keep people alive, irrespective of their chronological age, and not just alive, but of course youthful, both mentally and physically. Very, very cool. Aubrey, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Before we close out, I want to give you the opportunity to plug your foundation, plug everything you're involved in, your social medias, and give the audience, you know, a general place to find you and support your research endeavors. And once again, thank you for taking the time to come on. Everything you're doing is absolutely incredible. And although I might not understand the total depth of it in terms of my questioning, I really think that what you're doing is absolutely incredible and the general outlook of your goals is very, very inspiring. So thank you for that. And thank you for all you do. So the floor is yours. Well, you're very kind. Thank you, Dylan. And yeah, so I mean, I would just urge everybody to visit our website, sense.org. That's sense without an E on the end. So S for sugar, E for elephant, N for November, sense for sugar, dot O-R-G. That website is, of course, a um, resource for everybody. Um, The stuff there is written for everyone from complete novices all the way through to experts. We have as much information as you could possibly imagine about our own work and about the work of other people in the community, um, both um, historical stuff and the latest news. And there's a contact form there if you want to ask us a question that you can't find the answer to on the site itself. And of course, there's a nice big friendly donate button. Absolutely everything we do is dependent on financial support from donors. So please bear that in mind. Ladies and gentlemen, that was the incredible Aubrey de Grey. It's my pleasure. Thank you again for having me. Yo, what is up? So this is another edition of Senior Spotlight. Joining me for this edition, starting with one of the two, is Drew Taylor. She will be attending Marist this fall, studying business administration. Drew, thanks for coming on. How's it going? Oh, everything's good. Thank you for having me, Dylan. Thanks for coming on. And then the other person joining for this edition will be John V. Patel. She'll be attending university at Buffalo this fall, studying nursing. John V., how's it doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing good. So starting with kind of the most recent thing, unfortunately, your guys' senior year got cut short. So looking at what you guys did get to have, was there a favorite memory you could pull away from this year? I guess starting with Drew here. I mean, I'm grateful for the time we did have in school. I can't really complain about that. But, I mean, choosing between the memories I've had with my friends, I'm grateful for all of them. I can't really decide. I, I'd i have to say my favorite memory would be my um 
my job shadowing that I did with the Academy of Finance. I got to like be a grown up for the day, drive 45 minutes to a job shadow in a brewery. So that was like really cool. And I, it was like one of those boss moments where you're like this 17 year old kid going and following the the owner of a big company. And it's just, it was, it was probably one of the coolest things I've done so far. That's awesome. John V, how about you? Um, I have to say my favorite memory would be, I guess, homecoming this year, because I think that was the first time I got to hang out with all my friends. Like we were all in one place and we had a great time. So I would say that would most definitely be my first, my favorite memory of throughout all of high school. Now, obviously, unfortunately, this senior year did get cut short. But if there was one thing you could pull from the time we're in right now, or even just your senior year and time in school, is there a big lesson you could pull away from all this? I guess starting with you, John B. The biggest lesson I've learned pulling away from this is to appreciate everything that you've done. I feel like throughout high school, I was very quick and wanted to like finish. That was my first thought. Like, I just want to graduate. I just really want to graduate. And now that I don't get to enjoy the rest of my senior year and even get a real graduation, I wish I wasn't like that. And I wish I had just enjoyed the moments more that I did get to experience. Drew, how about you? Yeah, I have to agree with John B. But um, I think what I'm taking from this is that we don't really know what's going to happen all these, you know, growing up, we've kind of done the same routine over and over and over again. But it's not this that's not the case in the real world. You never you know, not everything is going to be thrown at you the same way. And I think that this is like the first obstacle that we have to go over. And I think we could take this almost as like an advantage, because this is going to be a hardship that we can apply later on in life. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. This is where kids, we don't have to worry about as much as maybe like business owners or people with jobs. And I just think it's kind of maybe a step up for us. Now, speaking of getting into that real life a little bit more, you guys are both now set to attend college this fall. Starting with you, Drew, why was Maris the right fit for you? Oh, my goodness. Um, with Maris, that was the very first college I visited. And I, I just, I really loved that college so much. It was so beautiful and something about it. I just felt at home right away. And then, you know, during this pandemic, we got to go and like drive around and just look at the colleges. And I was like, oh, maybe I'm not feeling the same way because I don't get to go in. But then when we went back to Maris for the last time, that was the last school I went to go see. That was just like, oh, I felt like I was at home again. Like that's where I felt like I belonged. Hmm. That's awesome. Now, John V, why was Buffalo the move for you? Um, I kind of have to agree with Drew. It just felt like home for me. When I visited, I loved where I was. I loved the feeling. I loved the campus. It was beautiful, in my opinion. And I just felt like I could see myself there for the next four years, and I knew I would be happy. Now, looking at, I guess, you know, college is going to take up a big period of this question, but if you had to give yourself a five to ten year goal, what would that be, I guess, starting with you, John, be here? My five to 10 year goal would honestly be to be in a place where I'm happy. Um, obviously, I want to graduate high, I mean, college and all of that. But I think my biggest goal is to just be in a place where I'm very happy and I'm successful in what I'm doing, whatever that is, because that could change. Drew, what about you? Um, 
Yeah. And I think after four years, I'll probably be out and, you know, looking for a job and stuff like that. And I'm hoping that, you know, at that point, I'll have more confidence in what I'm doing. And I I know now that I'm after being the Academy of Finance, I've, I've grown to be more confident in my business administration aspirations. So, but I really want to be more confident and solidified that I will be successful. And I'm looking forward to that. Now, I guess my next question here is a little bit more complex. And judging by the times right now, you're facing a little bit more of that hardship, obviously not as much as some other people, but, you know, losing the senior year does take a toll on you. So my question, I guess, is do you guys see the future as being scary or are you guys excited for the future or is it a little bit of a mix here? I guess starting with Drew. Um, being excited for the future. I am excited for the future. Um... Uh, you know, this, this is going to be as much as it seems like it's our world right now. I think it's definitely going to be, it's going to be over soon and we're going to be back to normal and we can just enjoy what we've learned and taken from it. And I don't know, I think we'll get back with our lives and honestly, it'll be better than ever because we'll be hitting, we'll be um, going uphill from a really low point. How about you, John V? Yeah, I have to say the same. I'm excited for the future because I feel like I just feel like it'll be different and it'll be filled with success for all of us because I think this is something we can learn from. And so I'm just excited to see really what the future holds for not only myself, but everyone who's going through this. Now, my final question for you guys is when I ask every guest, and it's a little bit of a bigger one, so take as much time as you guys need to answer individually. Starting with you, Drew, when it's all said and done, your career, your life as a whole, what do you, Drew Taylor, want your legacy to be? What do I want my legacy to be? That's this big question. <laughs> um, I think being the person I am, I am a perfectionist, and I've just gone through school wanting to always please people. So I think, I know as much as that isn't always the case and you don't always want to be, you know, always please everybody, but I think I just want to make everyone proud and everyone who has contributed to myself, maybe my, my, um, my parents, my siblings, my teachers, I just want to grow up and be the person that they knew I could be, the person that they've always said I was going to be. I want to make them proud. Awesome. John V, when it's all said and done, what do you want your legacy to be? That's hard to answer, but I would say I to be I would just want to be known as someone who never gave up and always kept trying. And I think that comes from a lot of things because I didn't I didn't always get the biggest support from my parents growing up because I had a lot of trouble with school and things like that. So I feel like where I am now, knowing that I've tried so hard and I've kept pushing through, I just want to be known as that person and hopefully be like an inspiration to others to see that like just because things aren't easy doesn't mean that you have to give up and you won't get where you want to be. That's awesome. I can't thank you guys enough for coming on and I'm sorry for how the senior year has went for you guys because it was unfortunately shortened but I hope this was a little bit of an opportunity to reflect on things so before we close out I do want to give you the opportunity to plug your social medias or just leave <laughs> off in a general message before we close out here and whoever wants to start can go. Go for it, Chompy. <laughs> okay. Well, um, I don't really want to put my social medias. It's fine. But I do <laughs> want to say I hope that everyone who's going into their senior year or really going into anything learns to appreciate whatever they're going to be doing because some 
expect the unexpected. And I just hope that everyone appreciates what life gives them. Drew, how about you? Yeah, um, I will give my Instagram because <laughs> um, just for the purpose of maybe anybody who's listening that has any questions later on, because I was pretty active in the Academy of Finance and just any questions in general, like I could totally help them out, um, especially if you want to go to Marist. Like I obviously be able to answer those questions. So um, Drew Taylor 29. But um, maybe a message is uh, just keep going. This is all going to end soon. Senior year, you know, it is what it is. We have, this is just one era, you know, this era is ending, but we have a lot more to look forward to. And Dylan, thank you for doing this for us. This really does mean a lot to be able to reflect and speak upon maybe the, the moments we did enjoy. So this meant a lot. Yeah, I have to say thank you. It's really sweet that you thought of us during all of this. Well, thank you guys for coming on. Ladies and gentlemen, that was John B. Patel and Drew Taylor. (laughs) My thanks to the girls for coming on. Um, Once again, I've gotten the privilege to sit down with now six of the girls um, that I'm close with and that are seniors and highlight their stories. And they're all incredible humans in their own aspects and uh, ways. They're all going to have great contributions on this world. Speaking of great contributions as well, I want to highlight Aubrey de Grey once again. Such an incredible human. Uh, Please check out everything he's doing. He's just a phenomenal human being. Next week's episode, loaded as well. I'm super excited for you guys to tune in. Uh, Reminder, you can listen wherever you listen to podcasts. Being Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, you know the drill. Also, Instagram at Ambitious Podcast, Twitter at Ambitious with DP. Watch out for Ambitious with Dylan Price YouTube. We've got some stuff brewing over there, some content coming out, as well as Ambitious Sports with a Z. Any updates on that will be on the podcast, Twitter, and Instagram. Tune in next week for another great episode, and I'll see you guys then. Have a great week.